This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio Web Seminar, which today is sponsored by TCAN. TCAN is a leading global provider of automated laboratory instruments and solutions. Their systems and components help people working in clinical diagnostics, basic and translational research, and drug discovery bring their science to life. In particular, they develop, produce, market, and support automated workflow solutions that empower laboratories to achieve more. Today's presentation is titled Crash Course, Developing a Foolproof ELISA, and is being presented by Dr. Amonse Talton from University of Missouri in Columbia. Amonse is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Missouri, where she studies the developmental programming of offspring born to mothers with gestational diabetes and teaches cell biology. In her free time, she enjoys science writing, singing, long walks, and time spent relaxing with her family. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Monse at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash Eliza webinar. That's bit.ly slash Eliza webinar, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Monse, for the presentation. Thanks, Amanda. Um, so welcome again. Um, to the webinar titled Crash Course Developing a Foolproof ELISA. Um, my aim today is to walk you through the basic types of ELISA that people use in um, the laboratory settings and also in biomedical settings, um, and also present pros and cons for each type of ELISA, um, as well as describe what you can do to troubleshoot a faulty ELISA. So as an outline, um, first thing we're going to do is describe an ELISA, so what is this technique, um, and then we'll talk about the pros and cons of different types of ELISAs um, and the basic mechanism of using each one. Um, I'll talk then again about when to use each type of ELISA, so what ELISA is right for you. Um, and then we'll go into the materials that are needed for almost every ELISA, um, what is provided in kits that are commercially bought and what you usually need to provide yourself. Um, we'll do a practice run through of an ELISA. I'll pick the simplest type that we can just kind of go through and, and um, work through its process. Um, lastly, we'll talk about some major considerations in ELISA development or how you can troubleshoot an ELISA. Um, and as a bonus, I've added some of my personal tried and tested tips for ELISA success. All right, well, let's get started with discussing what an ELISA is. So firstly, and most basically, ELISA is an assay. Um, an assay is any laboratory investigation that is used to measure um, either qualitatively or quantitatively the amount or the presence of a biomolecule. Um, ELISAs are enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays. Um, they were first discovered in Sweden, um, first published by Peter Perlman and Eva Engvall. Um, this is a picture to the right of Eva Engvall um, at Stockholm University in Sweden. And ELISAs are used to detect biomolecules again. So typically proteins, um, peptides, which are just shorter proteins, and antibodies are used um, to be detected through an ELISA. 
Um, ELISAs are used very often nowadays, um, and one of the big reasons is because they are very simple, very quick, and very sensitive. You can typically get an ELISA done in one day um, or two days if you extend your incubation steps. So within a couple of hours, you can get data from large numbers of samples, um, and they're really sensitive, so they can also detect between uh, 0.01 nanograms to 0.1 nanograms of an analyte, um, which is great for a lot of experiments. Okay, so what are the different types of ELISAs? There are four basic types. Um, you have direct ELISAs, indirect ELISAs, sandwich ELISAs, and competitive ELISAs. Um, and as I walk through the following procedures of all four of these, um, know that an ELISA can detect, again, either an antigen, like a protein or a peptide, or it can detect antibodies. Um, for keeping things simple, I'm just going to focus on the detection of antigens. Right, so the first type of ELISA we'll walk through is the direct ELISA. Um, this is the simplest ELISA procedure. Um, it's very, very straightforward. There is antigen detection by a single enzyme-linked antibody, um, and the addition of a substrate results in a signal. Um, so to break this down a little further, um, it's the one, it's the first one shown with the green arrow. Um, AG, which is the little blue circle at the bottom, refers to an antigen. Um, let's say that's a protein um, that you want to quantify the concentration of in a sample. So the first step um, is to add an antibody, um, a primary antibody to that protein, so specific to that protein. Um, and the antibody itself is linked to an enzyme, which is shown here in green. Um, the enzyme will have a specific substrate that when it binds to, it produces a reaction. Um, so in the second step, the substrate is added um, and the enzyme catalyzed reaction results in a signal being given off. Um, and this signal needs to be able to be detected. So it's either going to produce a color change or chemiluminescence or fluorescence. Um, and it will have a quantifiable intensity that is proportional to the amount of antigen or target protein that you started off with. So this is the basic procedure of um, an ELISA. And each one after this adds steps to the direct ELISA. So the benefits of a direct ELISA are, one, that it's really short, okay? So it's a small, uh, small subset of experiments that need to be done. One, no secondary antibody is needed. Um, and so the benefits of that is that you're reducing the possibility of cross-reactivity. So there's not going to be binding of multiple other proteins or other antigens onto your antibody. Um, secondly, because there is one step detection through one antibody, the assay is going by very quickly. Um, and additionally, only using one antibody minimizes user error. So there's one step, there are less opportunities for us to make mistakes. The disadvantages of direct ELISA is that it has a fairly, fairly, sorry, fairly low sensitivity. Um, so the signal is not amplified. And to explain this, um, as we go through the other ELISAs, you'll see how signal can be amplified. But briefly, um, the primary antibody that is used is typically a monoclonal antibody. And what that means is that it binds to one specific site on the antigen. Um, so it has one epitope of the antigen that it's binding to. And so because of this, you don't have the opportunity for multiple antibodies binding and giving off a signal, which means you get a very small signal released for each amount, <clears throat> excuse me, for each antigen that is detected. 
Um, when you use additional antibodies, you can have binding to multiple different sites, um, and that can give you a lot of signal amplification for one signal or one antigen. Um, the other disadvantage is that monoclonal antibodies are quite expensive um, to use and to modify. And so in this case, not only are you using monoclonal antibodies, you are also um, conjugating them to an enzyme. So um, conjugating or modifying a monoclonal antibody is also cumbersome and pricey. The next type of ELISA is um, the indirect ELISA. Um, and this, again, is a, it, the basis of this ELISA is the direct ELISA, except that there's an additional step added to it. So again, we start off with our blue antigen at the bottom of the well. Um, and the antigen is first detected by a primary antibody. That primary antibody is then recognized and bound by a secondary antibody, which is enzyme-linked. Um, the enzyme-linked antibody is what then reacts with the um, substrate when it's added, and that enzyme-substrate reaction results in a signal that is quantified. So it's similar to the direct ELISA, you just have a second antibody um, slotted in there. So one of the pros of um, indirect ELISA is that you have multiple secondary antibodies that are able to amplify the signal. So this goes back to what we talked about with the direct ELISAs and um, antibody epitopes. Um, secondary antibodies are typically polyclonal instead of monoclonal. And so this means that they can bind to multiple spots on the primary antibody. And so you can have a cluster of secondary antibodies amplifying or giving off a signal for a single antigen, whereas you would only have one signal given off for a primary antibody. Um, additionally, there is increased flexibility. So um, secondary antibodies aren't specific for the antigen, they're just specific for primary antibodies. And so you can, in, in principle, use the same secondary antibody for multiple different assays. Um, there are disadvantages to indirect ELISA. Um, one of them is that it's a little bit slower than uh, direct ELISA. So there is two-step detection. There is the addition of an extra step where you have to add the secondary um, antibody. And so that slows down the process a little bit, but it still only takes typically um, eight to 12 hours to complete. Um, and the possibility of cross-reactivity is higher. So adding a secondary antibody, especially one that is not specific to an antigen, but just specific to antibodies or primary antibodies in general, increases the chance that it will bind non-specifically. Um, and this can increase the background noise. So direct and indirect ELISAs are formats of ELISA, but they're also detection strategies. Um, and what that means is that they can be used in the next two types of ELISAs that I'll talk about um, to detect uh, the presence of an antigen. So the rest of the methods of ELISA that we'll talk about can use either direct or indirect detection. Um, and that again depends on whether a primary antibody is enzyme linked or um, the secondary antibody is enzyme-linked. Okay, so a sandwich ELISA is actually most common um, in the laboratory that I work in, um, so it's the one that I'm the most familiar with. Um, and in a sandwich ELISA, the antigen is basically sandwiched in between two antibodies. Um, and so the way that works is instead of having the antigen at the bottom of the well, you have the 
capture antibody, which is a type of primary antibody that is conjugated or immobilized to the well first. And then your antigen is added and detected by that capture antibody. Detection, again, can be used either through direct or indirect methods. So if you are doing a direct sandwich ELISA, um, you would then add a detection antibody, which is shown here in orange, and that antibody would be enzyme-linked. Um, in this case, it's showing a indirect um, detection for a sandwich ELISA, and so you have the primary antibody added or the detection antibody added in orange, and then you also have that blue um, secondary antibody, which is enzyme-linked, that is also added. So the enzyme-linked secondary antibody, again, recognizes the detection antibody and is able to amplify the signal. So a substrate is added in the last step and there is a signal that's given off. So again, um, you would get a um, smaller signal amplification if you use direct detection and a larger, simple, uh, larger um, signal amplification using um, a secondary antibody or indirect detection. Pros and cons. Um, so we'll start with the positives. What's good about a sandwich ELISA? So um, the use of multiple antibodies, again, increases the specificity. So you have a capture antibody, which is recognizing one epitope of the antigen, and then you have a detection antibody recognizing another epitope. Um, this minimizes background noise. It minimizes the um, chances of nonspecific binding. Um, secondly, you can detect very low levels of antigen. Um, sometimes a polyclonal capture antibody is used, and so then it just detects any of your um, antigen that, uh, that is present um, because it's not looking for one specific epitope or one specific site. Um, and in that way, you can capture all of the antigen um, that is put into a well, or at least most of the antigen that is put into a well, um, being able to then detect very low levels. Um, and again, both direct and indirect uh, detection strategies can be used. So there's a bit of flexibility with sandwich ELISAs. Um, the cons to using a sandwich ELISA, uh, firstly, it can't be used with very small antigens or antigens with only one epitope. Um, and the reason behind this is because it's sandwiched, again, between two antibodies. And so there needs to be enough antigen size or enough epitopes or regions for binding um, for both the capture and the detection antibody. So a small antigen cannot really be detected well by sandwich ELISAs. The second uh, issue is that you need matched pairs of antibodies um, to recognize different epitopes of the antigen. So again, if you're using monoclonal capture and detection antibodies to look at a specific epitope or to bind to a specific epitope on the antigen, you need uh, one antibody that's able to recognize one epitope, and you need another primary antibody able to detect a different epitope of that same antigen. Um, so finding these matched pairs can prove to be quite difficult sometimes. I mean, again, if you're using those monoclonal antibodies, they can be pretty expensive. So the last type um, of ELISA that we'll talk about um, is probably the most complicated, and that's a competitive ELISA. Um, I'm going to talk about 
both antigen um, and antibody detection in this case, um, just to kind of give an example of when an ELISA will be used to um, detect an antibody instead of an, an antigen. Um, so we'll start off with the antigen. Um, and so the key with a competitive ELISA is that there is competition for binding um, either to an antibody or an antigen. So um, the basics of a competitive ELISA you start off with a primary antibody and antigen complex bound to the well. Um, and so that's what we're looking at here um, in the third box. Um, your enzyme-linked antigen is then added, and that competes for binding to the primary antibody. Um, and so if you look there at the third box, you've got the pink um, sample, which is um, your antigen of interest, um, that's bound to this gray antibody. And then you add enzyme-linked antigen, which is shown in yellow, um, that's competing for binding sites um, with that antibody. And so in principle, the more of your antigen that you have from your sample, which again is the pink dot, um, the less of your enzyme-linked um, antigen is able to bind because these sites are occupied. Um, and so the signal that is produced from the enzyme-linked antigen will be inversely proportional to the amount of antigen present. Um, and so saying that another way, if you had very little sample like you do um, in figure three, um, then you have lots of opportunity for the enzyme-linked antibody to bind and um, produce a signal. Um, when an antibody is uh, competing, it happens just a little bit differently. So again, you have your primary antibody and antigen complex that's bound to the well. Um, and then an enzyme-linked antibody instead of an enzyme-linked antigen is added, and that competes for binding to the original antigen, um, which is shown again at the bottom of this well in blue. Um, and so again, in principle, the more of your sample antibody that there is, which is what is shown here bound to your blue antigen, um, the less of your enzyme-linked antibody is able to bind, and the reverse is true. So if you have very little of your sample antibody, lots of your enzyme-linked antibody is able to bind. Um, and so your signal then, again, is inversely proportional to the amount of sample antibody present. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So the pros of a competitive ELISA, firstly, you can detect small quantities of your antigen. Um, you can also detect antigens with only one epitope. So again, you're not having multiple um, antibodies binding to the same antigen um, as you did with sandwich ELISA. And so this allows you to be able to use um, smaller, um, not only smaller quantities of antigen, but also smaller antigens in general. And um, thirdly, you're using an enzyme-linked antigen, um, which, which uh, uh, saves you from using um, another antibody. Um, and antibodies are typically very expensive. Um, and lastly, you can either use direct, indirect, or sandwich detection strategies um, to do a competitive ELISA. So what are some of the cons? Um, when you have the antigen as the competitor, um, you may have to conjugate it to the enzyme by yourself. So they don't um, always come combined to enzymes and kits. Um, this of course is cumbersome and, and difficult and you need the skills to be able to do this. Um, and then the second con is just basically 
based on whichever de detection strategy you use. So if you use detect direct um, detection or indirect detection, or if you use the sandwich ELISA method, you're carrying over the cons of whatever um, that detection strategy is. Okay, so we know the four different types of ELISAs. What type of ELISA is best for you? Which type of ELISA should you use? Um, like I said, we use sandwich ELISAs a lot in our lab, um, and that's because we detect fairly large antigens in complex samples um, such as serum, um, and our samples are usually unpurified. Um, but different people do different things, right? So there are four different types. Um, the direct ELISA is best used when you are detecting um, an immune response to an antigen. Um, and so just what is the antibody binding like to a specific antigen? Um, if you're also detecting antigens that only have one available antibody because of uh, limited research, for example, the direct ELISA is the best to use because you only need um, one ELISA, one um, antibody binding um, to that antigen. In indirect ELISA, it's best to use that if you are detecting the total amount of antigen or antibody concentration in a sample. Again, with sandwich ELISAs, if you're detecting a large antigen, um, because you have to use two antibodies binding to that same antigen. Um, also, if you're using complex unpurified samples, so the added specificity of using two primary antibodies technically um, increases your specificity. So complex unpurified samples are great for sandwich ELISAs. Um, in competitive ELISAs, if you're de detecting very small antigens um, or detecting antigens that only have one available antibody, again, um, those are great ELISAs to use. Okay, so let's get down to the basics of how to um, actually perform an ELISA. So we've talked about the general principles. Um, what materials do you need for your ELISA? Um, typically, uh, nowadays, ELISAs are done using um, commercial kits. Um, and so some of the materials are already provided in the kit. Um, for example, there is the use of a 96-well uh, polystyrene plate. Um, and plate sealers, which are basically um, just to prevent anything from evaporating um, out of the well. Those are usually provided with the kit. Um, any buffers that you will use, like wash buffers, um, assay buffers, are typically also provided with the kit. You'll have standards, um, so there'll need to be a standard curve by which you will determine your concentration um, of antigen, and the standards typically are also provided with the kit. Um, antibodies that will be used are provided um, the enzyme and its specific substrate for the enzyme reaction are also provided, and a stop solution, um, which we'll describe a little bit later, is also provided. So commercial kits do a lot of the work for us nowadays. Um, what's not provided with the kit that you'll need is a multi-channel pipette. Um, and so there's lots of pipetting, but because you have 96 wells and you want to do things fairly consistently and in a timely manner, um, it's very helpful to have a multi-channel pipette. Um, reagent reservoir boats are also going to come in very handy. Um, you need a plate reader or a spectrophotometer um, to be able to measure your signal um, and give you an absorption value or, or a reading of the fluorescence for, for you to be able to calculate the concentration of your antigen. You'll also need a timer. Um, you'll need a vortex. You'll need absorbent paper. Um, you'll need a plate shaker. Uh, a plate washer is a fancy piece of equipment that can be used to do all your wash steps for you. We'll talk about wash steps a little later, 
um, but it's it's not absolutely necessary. You can do the washes manually pretty effectively. Okay, so to kind of apply all the things we've talked about, I um, want us to do a practice run through an ELISA. I picked the simplest kind, a direct ELISA, just to uh, keep things fairly simple. Um, but we'll walk through um, each of the steps in a direct ELISA um, to determine what we're doing and also what kind of things can go wrong and what kind of things to take into consideration. So the first step um, in an ELISA is to immobilize the antigen or conjugate the antigen to the bottom of the well. Um, and so the, the two methods that are basically used to do this um, are covalent bonding, um, which is shown on the right, where there is a covalent bond between the antigen and the well. So the wells, again, are provided um, or the plates are provided by a company and they're usually um, designed in such a way that this covalent bonding is facilitated once your antigen is added. Um, a second way could be through hydrophobic interactions. And so um, the plate, again, will be um, designed in such a way that there are strong um, hydrophobic interactions and multiple hydrophobic interactions with the antigen to keep it immobilized onto the plate. Um, so this is typically accomplished by the first step of the uh, ELISA, which is adding um, your antigen to the sample, um, and it will need to be incubated for a number of hours. Um, so typically one to four hours um, at room temperature, it will will be able to be enough time for the antigen to um, conjugate or immobilize to the well. So the importance then of this uh, conjugation is because ELISAs are full of washes. Um, so any unattached antigen, so anything that's not hydrophobically connected or not covalently connected, will need to be washed away um, to reduce nonspecific binding. Um, and so there's a schematic at the bottom to kind of explain why this is important. Um, and so if you look at your plate well without, um, without blocking, for example, you've got lots and lots of uh, non-specific um, antibodies shown at the bottom. Um, and so if you do wash carefully, you wash all of these away. Um, and that's the idea behind washing. So um, a blocking step is also important after you've added your antigen, um, even though you are going to do the washes, um, just to prevent the um, non-specific binding, um, again, of, of antibodies and antigens to the well. And so when you look at the uh, schematic, the last schematic with blocking, you see that the blue substance, which is representing your blocking, um, uh, your blocking proteins, are covering the rest of the well to prevent, um, again, nonspecific binding. So these two steps are, are important for reducing background noise through reducing, <coughs> excuse me, the nonspecific binding of uh, antigens and antibodies to the well. Um, so the next step then is detection, um, and this is where your enzyme-linked antibody is added. And so in a direct ELISA, again, the primary antibody is enzyme-linked. Um, so when it is added and incubated with the antigen, it's able to bind to the antigen um, and then basically give off a signal after the substrate is added to to show how much antigen is present. Again, there is a wash step after the primary antibody is added to make sure that any unbound antibody um, is removed um, so that you don't have signal amplification given off from antibodies that are not bound to any antigen. Um, again, when the enzyme substrate is added, um, 
you have that color, which is given off as the enzyme and the substrate um, undergo their reaction. Um, when the color sufficiently develops, a stop solution will stop the enzyme substrate reaction to allow you to then um, use a plate reader or spectrophotometer to determine the concentration of your antigen. So the absorption then um, of the solutions of the well in the well um, is basically a read of the color that is produced by the enzyme substrate reaction. Um, and that's measured by the plate reader. And then the concentration of the antigen can then be calculated um, from the absorption. So there's typically um, a figure uh, such as the one on the right, where you have the antigen level or concentration being able to be um, calculated through some mathematical formula from the absorption um, of the color that is red. Okay, so this is basically a run through then of an ELISA. And as we've gone through this ELISA, you can probably already start to think of things that could go wrong. Um, and so the next step now is troubleshooting. What are some things that you can avoid um, happening to your ELISA to keep it foolproof? Um, and if you have issues with your ELISA, what are some things to think about that could be going wrong? Um, the first and probably most important thing is the um, collection um, and the purity of your sample or your antigen. Um, and so it's important to collect the samples properly and to store them properly. Um, and so if you don't want your, your antigen to degrade, for example, it may need to be stored at negative 80, um, or it may need to be stored at room temperature. Um, it may need to be refrigerated or frozen within a certain range of time after collecting it. Um, the collection is also very important. So um, one of the samples that I use um, pretty often is uh, blood samples. Um, and depending on the way that you um, collect the blood, so the type of needle you use um, and the type of uh, technique you have, you may burst red blood cells as you collect blood. Um, and this is called hem hem hemolysis, which can actually interfere with some ELISA assays. So having a good collection technique um, and keeping the purity of your sample intact is uh, the most important first step. Um, secondly, you want to know whether you need to um, dilute or purify your sample before you use it. Um, so some samples just naturally contain interfering substances. Um, for example, going back to the blood, um, blood samples will often contain NADH, especially when there has been quite a bit of um, hemolysis. And that doesn't interfere with all ELISAs, but it does interfere with some of them. Um, so knowing what kind of interfering substances are present in your sample is important. Um, and if you already have them there and you can't take them out, um, diluting them out may be a way to um, also get good ELISA results, even with um, interfering substances in your um, sample. Um, another issue is low signal amplification. So this is one of the most common concerns with ELISA. Um, and typically what happens is you run an ELISA, you look at your results, and many of the absorption values are below the detection range. Um, and so ways that you can avoid this are by increasing um, the amount of time that you incubate um, your primary, secondary antibodies, um, and sometimes even your enzyme substrate um, to allow uh, the amount of the, the reaction to proceed for a little bit longer to give you a, a larger signal. 
Um, another step is to perform the enzyme uh, substrate reaction in the dark. So a lot of times the substrate will come in a dark bottle, um, and that's because it's sensitive to light. Um, and so if you are able to cover your plate when that reaction is going on or turn off the lights or shut the windows, sometimes you can get better amplification. Background noise um, is another uh, tricky issue that you can have with ELISAs. Um, and again, this goes back to your wash steps and your blocking steps. And so if any unbound antigen or unbound antibody is present um, and giving off a signal, um, that can give you a lot of background noise. You can usually test if you have lots of background noise through um, the blank in your standards. Um, so I mentioned that you use a standard curve um, to measure your concentration um, of antigen in your assay. Um, the standard curve will usually start at zero and have increasing levels of your antigen. Um, and so that zero value is very important for telling you whether you have background noise or not. So if you have values that are a little bit higher than zero, that's not too much of a problem. Um, but if you have fairly high levels um, of your zero um, standard, then you can tell that you have a lot of background noise. And then, you know, again, with repeating an assay, making sure that those wash steps are performed properly and those blocking steps are performed properly. Um, wash steps uh, can be can be tricky. So usually ELISAs will give you or a protocol that will describe how to wash the assay. Um, and they'll typically ask you to wash three or four times or even up to six times um, after the addition of your um, antibodies or your antigens. Um, and it's important when you do those washes to discard all of the wash buffer from those wells. Um, and this is done by tapping very um, briskly on an absorbent um, sheet of paper. And so sometimes we want to be very careful with the plate and not break it. And so we don't do this as vigorously as we should. But it's very important that your plate is almost dry um, after your wash sets. Um, so the last issue that you could have is just unexpected values, right? Just bizarre values, not what you've expected to see at all. So um, typically you can uh, figure out whether you're having unexpected values by looking at your standard. Your standard should increase by a certain increment each time. Um, and if you have crazy duplicates or crazy numbers in your standards, um, or you expect a very low concentration of your antigen and see a very high concentration sometimes, um, that often goes back to your pipetting technique. Um, and so the best way to check for um, uh, a good pipetting technique is to perform ELISA assays in duplicate or triplicate. Um, and so measure the same sample in two wells or three wells, and then go back and look at your values in those three wells for reproducibility. If you have very similar numbers in all um, three wells, then you can trust your pipetting. And if they're different, then you know that you need to work a bit better um, on your pipetting technique. Secondly, um, vortexing your solutions, um, not just your standard dilution, but also your um, samples will need to be vortexed before you add them to the plate um, to make sure that everything is mixed in properly and you're getting the right concentration or the right amount of antigen in each pipette. So the very last thing um, I want to do um, is to give you some of my own tips um, for ELISA success. Um, I've been doing ELISA for a few years now, so I have a couple of um, tricks that aren't necessarily written in the protocol, um, but things that come in handy when um, planning um, an ELISA assay. Um, and so the first one 
is to take your kit or your samples out of the fridge or freezer um, 30 minutes before you want to start the assay. Um, what you'll notice when you go to start an ELISA assay is that um, a lot of the protocols will ask you to start with all of your samples or every um, component of your kit at room temperature. Um, and so if you intend to start at 2 p.m. and you bring everything out of the fridge at 1.55, that can be a bit disappointing because then you have to sit down for 30 minutes waiting for everything to get to room temperature or even longer. Um, and so bringing things out in advance will save you um, that time. Secondly, um, and I alluded to this earlier, covering the ELISA plate during the enzyme substrate reaction um, has produced a significantly better signal amplification for me. Um, and I think, again, that's because that substrate is um, so light sensitive. Thirdly, arranging and labeling your reagent reservoir boats ahead of time. This is a very um, important step for me. Um, there are... Um, there are many uh, instances where ELISA plates will dry out, um, and this is, is pretty detrimental to the ELISA assay. So you don't want um, your ELISA assay to dry out. In other words, you don't want your um, freshly washed plate that you've tapped all the wash buffer out to sit um, on the lab bench for five minutes while you try to find the wash buffer or, or a different buffer or substrate um, and pour it into the re reagent well and set up your pipette to the right volume and pick up your reagent and then put it into your well, um, you want to be prepared. And so it helps to arrange in order um, all of the reagents that you're going to use in their reservoir boats and label all of them so that you can quickly run through the process. Um, fourth is um, the Again, going back to the wash buffer, you do want to tap out all of the excess wash buffer before your next step, but you don't want your plate to dry out. And so it's important not to tap out that excess wash buffer until you have everything set to add the next reagent to the assay. Um, and this usually comes uh, comes up for me where I'm adding um, uh, I'm adding a reagent that has a different volume. And so after I finished tapping out my wash buffer, I realized that, oh, I need to change um, the setting on my pipette, for example. So it's good to set all those things up before you do that final um, tap out of your wash buffer from your plate. Um, the very last step is to um, plan your plate layout during your incubations. Um, so again, the last step in your ELISA is to uh, read your plate on a plate reader or spectrophotometer, and you typically will have to outline the design of your plate. So um, specify what is present in each well, um, specify what kind of um, regression you're using to analyze the concentration of your sample. Um, and this can take quite a little bit of time, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, especially if you haven't done it before um, and don't have something preset on, and saved um, on your instrument. Um, and so there are a lot of short incubations during the ELISA, and that is a good time for you to set that up. Um, also, there is um, the opportunity to get something to eat during the longer incubations. Um, so this is a fairly um, short procedure. It takes maybe a day or two days to get values for many samples, but it does take a couple of hours at a time. Um, and so you want to fit in lunch or dinner during the longer incubations that are an hour or two hours long. And on that note, I'd like to thank you for um, taking the time to listen to this webinar and um, take any questions you have.
So uh, thank you, Amonsa. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. So in case you're wondering, Amanda hasn't suddenly morphed into a Scotsman. She had a, a little bit of a problem with her uh, her computer, so I'm jumped on. This is Nick Oswald, so I'm going to jump on to finish the remainder of the sessions with you. Right. So uh, thank you very much for a great presentation. And thank you. judging by the uh, the number of questions we have here already, um, it went down very well. So uh, everyone, if you have uh, and a question you would like to post to Monster, then please uh, put it in the questions box that appears on the right-hand side of your screen. And let's go to those questions then. So we'll start off with one um, from Angela. And uh, Monster, the question is, uh, in case of, let's do, okay, in, in, for indirect ELISA, the secondary antibody is not specific, but the primary antibody is specific for our antigen. So then why would cross-reactivity occur? Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, so that's a great question. Um, it's possible that your um, sample or your antigen um, uh, is actually coming in contaminated. Um, and so if you put in a, a serum sample, for example, or some other um, sample that comes with both antigens and antibodies, and say your wash step was not perfect or your blocking steps were not perfect, you may have other primary antibodies or other antibodies just floating around um, in your assay. And so because your secondary assay is not specific um, for any type, any specific type of primary antibody, it could bind to those um, those antibodies. And so cross-reactivity then becomes a problem um, in, in that case. Excellent, I'm sure that answered Angela's question there. So uh, here's one from Yaroslava. Uh, can you clarify what difference in the affinity of target and competitor is accept acceptable for a successful competitive ELISA? Um, so in my experience, you want them to be the same. Um, so the idea is that you're competing um, with you, the, the whatever the antigen or the antibody that's, com that's competing with your sample antigen or antibody has the same affinity um, for the, the binding site that it's competing for. Um, and then that way, the only thing that you're measuring then is the presence or the amount of your sample antigen um, versus maybe something that could compete at a higher uh, level or a lower level, you would you would uh, complicate your results that way. Does that make sense? I, yes, it does to me. Okay. So hopefully it makes sense to the audience. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, so going to one from Gil here. Uh, let's have a look. So for indirect and ELISA, do you know if there are secondary uh, IgG horsage peroxidase available, which is multi-species for dog, cat, swine, chicken, Etc. Hmm. Available on the market. I, I actually don't know. Um, so we we typically use uh, rabbit and mouse um, okay. antibodies. So I'm I'm not familiar with that. No. Quite, quite a specialist question that one. And another one from Gillen. Uh, he says his uh, blood specimen is placed in FTA cards. Do you have an ELISA protocol for that? Um, I don't have ELISA protocols myself. Um, typically, you know, going through ResearchGate or, or Googling is honestly the best way to find um, free protocols out there, especially for a specific ELISA um, that you're looking for. You could also, of course, um, surf through PubMed um, for those. Yeah, literature is probably the place, isn't it? The old-fashioned yeah. solutions are always the best, or sometimes the best. <laughs> exactly. Right, let's have a look at what Benjamin is asking. Which kind of ELISA 
would be best in determining histone modifications? Hmm. That's a great question. This is like an exam question. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think here. Okay, so a histone modification. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, that's a tricky one. <laughs> do you think it's something you could? Figure out, or yourself, or well, like, maybe get back to Benjamin later, or yeah, you know, I think I think I could do that. That's a great question. Um, I will look it up yeah. and and maybe make a great comment stuff. on this later. Yeah, we'll, we'll give you we'll put you in touch with Benjamin so you can you can get in touch and answer that one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, one from Aditi. Um, can you elaborate a bit more about how you plan the serial dilutions in your Eliza? Yes, yes. Um, so the serial dilutions are typically done with your standards. Um, and so basically you are um, starting off with um, a, a zero uh, level of your standard, which again, your standard is, is the anti antigen that you're interested in studying. So to make sense of it, I'll just pick one. Um, let's say you're looking at levels of um, insulin in the blood. Um, so your standards will be insulin standards. Um, and you'll have one that is at level zero, so zero concentration of insulin, and then you'll have set increments from there. So you'll have uh, maybe 0 0.2 nanograms, 0 0.5, 1, um, 5, 10, going, going in order. Um, and the importance of these serial dilutions then is that you're trying to capture the range of concentrations that you expect to get in your samples, um, so in your assay. Um, and you're going to use that serial dilution to make your curve. So typically, if you're really lucky, the commercial kit you're using will come with the serial dilutions already set out um, from zero to, you know, let's say 10. Um, but if you have to dilute them yourself, um, you basically just need to add um, a certain amount of buffer, which will be given to you um, in the kit to dilute the, um, to dilute the, the standard. Um, so say you start off with 10, you add, um, 10 microliters of your standard to 10 microliters of your buffer, then you have your five standard and then you go from there. Okay. It's really good to have kind of, you know, some, some simplified protocols for that ahead, isn't it? So that you can you can just it do it instead of actually having to think. And, and really, the, the protocols are are really great out there. Um, yeah. You just if you if you look online, typically you'll find protocols that will explain to you how to set it up to the T. So. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so we have one last question from okay. appropriately for, our, for the person who asked the first question, Angela. So she asked, how how are signals amplified in direct Eliza? And why does that amplification not occur in, in sorry, how are signals amplified in indirect ELISA and why does that amplification not occur in, in indirect ELISA? That's a great question. Um, okay, so we'll talk first about indirect ELISA. Um, so again, you have your antigen um, and the antigen is being bound by a primary antibody, which typically is binding to just one site on the antigen. Um, so in indirect ELISA, you have a secondary antibody that um, has the ability to release the signal because that's the one that's enzyme linked and reacting with the substrate. Um, the secondary antibody is not specific for the antigen and is able to bind to multiple sites on the secondary antibody. So you can imagine that then with indirect ELISA, you have your secondary antibody, you could have five or six secondary antibodies clustering around one primary antibody, giving off that much signal for one antigen. 
Whereas in direct ELISA, um, you have the uh, enzyme bound to the primary antibody, which typically is only binding to one side of your antigen. And so for one antigen, you have only one signal given off compared to maybe five or six uh, with indirect ELISA. Okay. That was a great, great answer. Does that make sense? Oh, good. <laughs> And that, I think that brings us to the end. There are no more questions. So I'll just thank you again, Amonsa, for a great presentation and discussion. Thank you very much. And yeah, if you could get me uh, Benjamin's information, I'll look up that histone question and get back we'll to it. We'll certainly do that. And thanks also to our sponsors, TCAN. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and you'd like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. And it should be available within the next 24 hours. Uh, and there you can also see the other webinars that we have lined up for you on Bite Size Bio. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at TCAN and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.